Our scripture this morning is from Proverbs 16. It is not only good wisdom, it is the infallible, inerrant word of God, which he grants to us in order that he may speak to us by his spirit, and therefore listen. Several different verses. 16 verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answers of the tongue is from the Lord. Verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even for the wicked, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And then verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap. But every decision is from the Lord. I love it when things come together. In my Bible reading plan, uh, Proverbs 16 was part of this week, and I read through it, and I'm going, this sounds like Sunday morning, and what we're going to talk about. We are on Lord's Day 10 in your book, and you will notice it comes right after Lord's Day 9. I don't know how they did that, but somebody very wise put that together. And we are talking about the Apostles' Creed. We're in the first section about God the Father. And Lord's Day 9 talks about God the Father as a creator. And so last week, uh, thanks, thank you for whoever did not erase this last week. It's back up here. God is our progenitor. He creates us. He is our protector. He watches over us. He is our provider. He provides everything that we need. Not everything that we want, but everything that we need. That's why the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, is so serious. Because we do it all the time. Man, why doesn't God give me a pink Cadillac? I know why, because I wouldn't want a pink Cadillac. (laughs) Why don't I have this? Or why don't I have something else? Now, he is a provider. From that, we go on to Lord's Day 10, when we're going to talk about the providence of God. And here we are talking about something that is simple, yet profound, almost incomprehensible, but it's always comforting. It's simple, because it simply says God directs everything. There's nothing outside of his direction. Not one molecule, not one atom, not one subatom, whatever you call those, moves without him giving it the energy to do so. It's incomprehensible because how does he do that? Knowing also that we are people who make decisions. And to an extent, we have free will in the sense that we freely decide things. So how does he do all of that and yet while we are making honest, moral decisions for which we are culpable or for which we will be blessed. And finally, it's comforting because we know that all of life is lived underneath his care. And therefore, everything that happens, happens not simply for a reason, but for those of us who are Christians, it happens to help us conform to the image of Christ, which is the goal of God in our lives. We were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Everything that happens 
is there to make us more like Jesus. That's comforting. I don't know about you. I, I appreciate it, not only in adversity, but also in those times of generosity. So we start with question 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? Uh, providence is a great word. It's more than a city in Rhode Island. Although that city got named for this by some Baptists. How they ever came up with the word providence, I have no idea. But it's from two Latin words, pro, that means before, in, that's shorthand for before his face, in his face. And videri, from which we get the word video, and you guys are all millennials plus, so I know what you know what a video is. To see. For instance, take a moment and look around. No, look around. <laughs> okay? What'd you see? People? Okay. Church? Building? Did you see the spot that's on the rug up here? No, because you can't see that. Did you see the cobweb that's back in the corner? No, there's no cobweb back in the corner. <laughs> there are a lot of things that are right in front of our face we never see. But with God and his providence, he sees and knows everything that is before his face. That's what the word means. It's to see everything and to deal with it as he sees it. Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. God, again, this is a confession of faith a hundred years later, uh, developed by pastors to be a much more thorough, deeper understanding of even the Heidelberg Catechism, but it's a great statement. God who created everything, the creator, upholds everything. He directs, regulates, and governs every creature, action, and thing. It don't leave too much uh, room for wiggling out of that. From the greatest to the least, by his completely wise and holy providence, he does so in accordance with his infallible foreknowledge and the voluntary, unchangeable purpose of his own will, all to the praise of his glory, all to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Basically, what Providence and the Westminster Confession is saying is that all creation exists and continues and operates by, his own, by God's power at work. If God ever for a moment went to sleep, everything would disappear. That's why the psalmist says he neither slumbers nor sleeps. If God forever, for, for any moment, a split second, forgot about you, poof, you'd be gone. Because everything operates under his power for the purpose of bringing him glory.
So God continually exercises that power. The answer that is given for Lord's Day 10, question 27, is an answer that can be divided into three categories. I'll read the answer and then we'll take a look at dissecting it. The almighty ever-present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, that's not herbs, it's herbs. Herb is the name of a friend of mine. <laughs> herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. There are three things that this, the uh, idea of uh, providence and of this catechism talks about. One is preservation. Almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby as it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all the creation. When uh, Genesis was written, and it talked about how in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, at the end of that whole story in chapter 2, it talks about how the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them, and on earth the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The rest, as I've, I've said a few times, it's not that he sat back and had his, what was the mint julep as I used last week? It's not that he sat back and just looked at his creation. It means that he no longer created anything out of nothing. But what he did was he exercised his power to keep what his creation is and to allow it to be fruitful in the way in which he created it. Therefore, in the spring, trees blossom. Those beautiful flowers we see all around it come up out of the cold, dark, dead earth. And God makes all these things. We procreate, and a child is conceived. All these things are by the power of God. He's not making new creation. What he is doing is simply helping and allowing his present creation to do what he created it to do. And that's what preservation is all about. Paul said this to the Athenians. In Acts 17, when he said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does anything since he does anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place so that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. And yet he is actually not far from each one of us. 
Paul was basically saying. He created, and now he works to allow it to do what is God doing. Even the rise and fall of nations could even be America. How many of you saw the royal wedding yesterday? I didn't. <laughs> I was busy doing something else. And you saw the pomp and circumstance, and you saw $50 million being put in to one day. I've seen some very expensive weddings, but I've never seen a wedding that expensive. And all of that into a country that used to be the empire of the world. The sun never set on Great Britain. And now the queen, who used to have absolute power, is somewhat of a figurehead. God raised up England, Great Britain. He's allowing it to decrease. God raised up America. We don't know what he's going to do with it. But he could, despite all of the rhetoric, he could actually say, you had your opportunity, you raised up and did what I want you to do. It's now time for you to become a third-class nation. That's not our prayer. But it is a possibility. And that would be in the providence of God if it comes to pass. In fact, they say the whole world is shifting to the southern hemisphere and to those areas. Well, that's a real great thought, isn't it? But that's what providence is. What it does is it precludes certain things. It precludes deism which is a watchmaker theory. God created the world. He wound it up. He got it going. Then he sat back and he's just letting it flow out the way it's going to flow out. He doesn't even know the end of it because things are going the way that it's, it's being produced by the world, not by him. There's even a theory of uh, within the Christian church, even with the evangelical church, that God doesn't know what's going to happen in the next minute. And the only way in which he operates is in reaction what to human beings do. Well, that doesn't make him much of a God. But that's basically what deism is. Fate. Was it Debbie Reynolds who said, Sarah, Sarah, what will be, will be. She made a billion dollars on this one song. What will be, will be. It's, it's my fate. An impersonal power has no being, has, has no opportunity to do anything, but it's my fate. Or, here's one, luck. You can be lucky today if you pick the right numbers for the Ohio lottery. And then watch at 7.30 when they show you the lucky numbers. Again, luck is powerless. It doesn't create events, but we use it all the time. Or here's one that used in a certain way can mean the same thing. And sometimes it's where the way it's used in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and all those groups, some higher power, no name has some kind of ability to do something, but we're not too sure what it is. You realize that all of those denigrate the person and character of God? 
Do you realize how often you can hear Christians use this? Is my fate. I was just lucky. This is my lucky day. And you don't realize, in a, in a sense, you're blaspheming God because you're taking away from him his providence and his care. See, the, the claim is that God is almighty. He has all the power that he needs to do to accomplish what he wants to do. And he is ever-present, omnipresent. There's no place you can hide from him. There's no place that he is not active. He is just active, as active in this room as he is in Mars or the furthest solar system. That is our God. And that's what providence helps us to understand. He is doing exactly what he wants to do everywhere with all of his creation, from the smallest atom to the biggest person, even to the most important person, the person that has the most, quote, power in this world. God is at work, and he is overseeing what takes place in all of that. The, uh, the catechism gives us a horrendous and powerful image. Horrendous in a good sense. You know, horrendous can be, oh, it's awful. Horrendous can be, whoa. You know, you can see a horrendous sunset. Oh, man. It's exciting. It thrills me. Get my camera, get my smartphone out so I can take a picture and send it to all my friends. All five of them. It is the in within the uh, two questions, 27 and 28, is a phrase that is used three times. His hands, or in the hand of God. Take a moment, look at your hand. Put it up in front of your face so you can see it. So I can see that you're seeing it. Yeah, wiggle it around. Not in the face of somebody else. <laughs> Do you realize how marvelous this thing is that we take for granted? It's very simple. Four fingers, a thumb, a palm, connected to the wrist. Uh, you hurt it, and it hurts you. It yet is so complex with all those little bones and muscles and tendons and nerves that are in there, and yet you can do marvelous things with it. You can write. You can go over to someone and say, there, there, the touch. It's like Jesus who went and touched a leper for the first time, put his hand on him. Unheard of. And yet it was part of the healing of the leper, not only for his disease, but for his own emotional well-being. You can create with it. Or in my case, you can decreate with it. You can use it for discipline, and you can use it for healing. You can secure, you can let go. And our hand is so amazing that we can go down and pick up a tiny little dime, something that no other animal or no animal can possibly do because they don't have our kind of a hand. It's an amazing thing. And God, and they use this image uh, intentionally to show you you are underneath the hand of God who heals 
who holds on, who can let you go but bring you back, who can discipline you, but also who can stroke you, a hand that is so strong that nothing can snatch you out of it, and it's so strong that you can't get away from it, a hand that watches over you day and night and watches over everything that happens, who has compassion upon you, it's that image. And you have to remember, it is only an image. They hedge the whole thing by saying, as it were, the hand of God. And I'm glad they did that, because in our day and age, we have people who literally think they know the size of God. They see that God has a hand breadth, and they say, well, it's eight inches. And if the hand is proportional to the rest of the body, and this is eight inches, and God has to be seven feet, six inches tall. I'm going, oh, man. Where did they, well, they never learned theology. <laughs> they just taught to learn what someone else said. God is a spirit, so it has to say, as if you were in his hand. And that is what he does. He oversees, and his hand is upon you and is there in all sorts of uh, times. So you have Second Peter 3, 5, the last part of that. Verse 7, where he says, But the same word, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. They are being kept. God is keeping these days and he's shaping them for his own purpose, and that is partly to come to the day of judgment, but partly to build up his children into the image of God that they would be who he's called them to be. He is at work creating a bride for his son, spotless, blameless, holy. And all of providence is working for all of his children, wherever they may be, to accomplish exactly that. Now, for those of you who think that God is puny, if you spend some time thinking about that, you realize how awesome, great, and horrendous God is. I mean, it, it just astounds. It ought to astound you. I ought to hear an amen. amen. Okay. Well, man, you guys are back to being Presbyterian. Amen. Okay, good. That's the first one, his preservation. The second is his government. So the confession, the catechism goes on and says, So governs them by herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Matthew tells us this in Matthew 6 when he's giving the, uh, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about how we are not called to worry or be concerned. You know, how he feeds the birds of the air and he clothes the, the beautiful flowers, even the dandelions that are in my yard. He closed all those, and then he comes back and says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. In the sense that as you are doing what God calls you to do, and as you are seeking his rule in your life. He'll give it to you. It's his hand at work. He governs in such a way 
that it occurs that way. For instance, there was a time that I was in between churches. Um, and we were living, and I wasn't really having an income, and we were getting close to a time in which there was no money in the bank, and the bank doesn't like that. I don't know why. <laughs> and some friends knew our situation, and so they gathered and collected. They collected food stuff, they collected money, and they came over to our house one night when the cupboards were just about bare and old Mother Hubbard was having a problem. Where are we going to feed our kids? We had four kids at that time. They bring in all these bags of groceries and they put them away. And then they give us a shoebox that's filled with money. And the, it, the food lasted until the day we moved and the money lasted until the, my next paycheck at a new church. Now, yeah, yeah you can give them a, give them a round of applause. Fate, luck, some higher power, some God who doesn't even know what's going on. No, that's the providence of God. It's a work. He governed. He, we, I, I, we never even said anything to anybody about our situation, but they figured it out and they acted on their own to do this. And you see, that's how God governs. So he governs in the things that are most pleasurable. Uh, he governs in the things that are devastating, that are wretched and hurting. He governs in the things where we wonder why. But at the same time, he is all governing. And sometimes we fall back on Deuteronomy 29, 29, not because we're ignorant, but because this is the way God operates. Secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That way, me, that way we may do all the works, the words of his law. There are times that we just have no idea why. And I, I've gotten this question as a pastor. Why did this happen? I've got to go Deuteronomy 29, 29. I have no idea. We'll find out. But there are other things that happen we know because they're in line with what his word for instance, in that gift that people gave to us, they were doing good to another brother and sister in Christ, and they were helping. So all that God is doing, he's taking everything in this world, and he is perfecting his kingly rule to his end and for his glory. Everything that takes place. So that nothing happens by chance. You know, chance... It's just a myth. Chance is simply a mathematical uh, probability. Weather forecast this morning, we're going to have 60% chance of rain, which I say is 40% of sunshine. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and yet it can be like the other day where Beaver Creek got two to three inches of rain and we up in the northern part of Riverside, Zippo, not a thing. The chance was 60%, we got Zippo. We talk about flip of a coin. Well, flip of a coin, that means every time you flip it, it's either going to come heads or tails. Or if by circumstances it ends on its side, but that normally doesn't happen. When I was in high school, or excuse me, junior high. No, it was high school. We used to play a game. You take a nickel and flip it, and the other one would do, and we'd call heads or tails. 
and whatever yours was, and if theirs was wrong, you got their nickel. I went up against one of the most popular kids in the, in the whole school, and I beat him time and time and time again. You know why? He was going on percentage. Well, let's see, I did heads, it must be tail, or it must be three heads in a row. And I just said, 50-50, take your pick. See, that's the way chance works. Chance is impersonal. It has no being behind it. Uh, I can tell you this, the Pen Penguins, Pittsburgh Penguins, have no chance at the Stanley Cup because they got eliminated. <laughs> okay? And there are some people down in Cincinnati saying the Reds have no chance for the World Series with the record they have. <laughs> but chance is simply mathematical probability. It has no power to change or do anything. And yet even Christians talk about the chance. Put it in line with what is luck. So God governs everything that happens. Even two inches of rain in Beaver Creek and Zippo in Riverside. The third part is concurrence. That God is acting in a manner that does not denigrate, deny, or destroy our human freedom, yet it follows his will. Concurrent, concurrence is two people who are acting at the same time in the same way, uh, freely acting, and they act in harmony. Again, I mean, this is, this is difficult to understand. How can it be that we make moral decisions freely choosing between one thing or another and God is at the same time working, not making us make a choice, not making us do something, but so operating that we make the choice he wants. That's what concurrence is all about. And therefore, for instance, God allows his creation to be fruitful, to multiply, to work through its particular characteristics of dandelions that like to come plot themselves in your yard. And when the sun comes up and it warms and the rain comes and the ground gets warm, they pop up and say, I'm here. I'm rooting your grass. I'm here. Or somebody cuts you off while you're driving. Somebody lies to you. Somebody does something to you. And your reaction is part of that whole process. See, Back to the Westminster Confession, 5-2. God is the first cause and in relationship to him, everything happens unchangeably and infallibly. We thought infallibility only had to do with the word of God. It has to do with all of his creation and how he operates his creation. It works infallibly. However, by this same providence, he orders things to happen from secondary causes. As a result of these others, secondary causes, some things must inevitably happen. Others may or may not happen, depending on the voluntary intentions of agents involved, and some things do not have to happen, but may depending on other conditions. For instance, you lie. You lie because you want to get out from underneath an embarrassing moment. 
that happens inevitably because we want to protect ourselves. We want ourselves to look good. At the same time, it depends upon your voluntarily lying. You know, your mother comes in the room and catches you doing something, and she doesn't say, now you're going to lie, aren't you? No, you voluntarily lie. And then she says, you lied, didn't you? Because she knows that you did it. You got caught. And some things may not happen. Your mother may not come in the room, and you get away with what you're doing, at least as far as your mother knows. And as far as that moment knows. But what, what could have happened is you got caught and disciplined doesn't happen. All three possibilities because you lied. Whatever it might be. And God works in such a way that he allows one of those three to operate in everything that takes place. Even in our salvation, if you look at the Ephesians 1 passage, in him, that is in God the Father, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purposes of him, purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who, are, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see the concurrence? He has predestined you from before the foundation of the world. He's working all things according to his good counsel to bring you to that point in which he regenerates you. But at the moment of regeneration, you must Hear the, gut, the truth, and you must believe the truth. And the two of them work together. It is why sometimes if you don't understand the full character and providence of God, you will say, well, I made a decision for Christ. And because of that decision for Christ, he loves me. No, you're forgetting the, uh, the primary cause of even making that decision. And yours is simply a secondary cause. You can't even go before the Lord God and say, what a good boy am I because I made that choice. He says, he'll, look, he'll, he'll run the video back to that moment and he'll show, I, see, I want you to see the invisible thing I did when I regenerated you and therefore you were able to believe. And we'll go, oh man, all those years thinking I was a free will Baptist. <laughs> no. oh. I could have said free will Presbyterian, but that's an oxymoron. <laughs> there is the work of God in our midst. So the question comes, what about evil? Does God do evil? And of course the answer, it's almost, it's almost redundant to say it, but no. A good, gracious, all-powerful God does not do evil. The issue is that evil is something with enter, which entered the creation which is less than what the Creator made. That's evil. It is the want of conformity to or of acting according to His character and His will. 
Adam reached out, plucked that fruit, put it in his mouth, crunched down on it, and he was going, oh, wow, that tastes, oh, I think I'm going to be sick. It was less than what the Creator had made it for. That fruit was not meant to be eaten, and it was the evil was eating it because it was less than what that creation, that created thing, was meant to use. And therefore, when evil happens, it's always less than what God created. So therefore, God is not the author of evil. He's the author of good. But we, in our evilness, do less than what he wants us to do or who we are called to be. And yet God works through even that. One of my prime examples, again, I read it this week in my Bible reading. 1 Samuel 25. David sends some of his shepherds to go to the sheep shearing feast. You got to be careful when you say that. Sheep shearing feast. And Nabal, who is the owner of the property, says, who's David? Get out of here. David hears that and he says, gentlemen, mount up. We are going to have a party tonight. He's going to go down and kill Nabal and everybody. Abigail, Nabal's wife, hears about it. She cooks up this ter tremendous smorgasbord buffet and puts it on donkeys and takes them and meets them in a pass. And there she falls down before him and says, David, don't do this. If you do this, this will be a black mark upon you when you become king of Israel, for you are destined to become king of Israel. And David listens to her and says, you know, if you hadn't have done this, I would have, I, Nabal and all of his f children and all of the men's service, they would have been wiped out by evening. Gone. Well, Abigail saves the day. She goes back. Nabal is at the evening and he is absolutely drunk, staggering, fall down, dropped, uh, almost drop dead drunk. So she waits until the morning. He comes down for his scrambled eggs and bacon and toast. And while he's eating there, Abigail tells Nabal what she did. And he's struck by a stroke. Ten days later, he dies. David wanted to avenge himself. God, in his mercy and his goodness, allowed him not to. And yet, a vengeance came. By the hand of God. See, that's concurrence. That's what takes place. That's why the Bible says to do good to your enemy. Do not do evil toward your enemy. That's why. Now the question comes, well, where was God when all this happened? He was right there. Why didn't he stop it? Deuteronomy 29, 29. We have no idea right now, but someday we'll probably find out. And you have to rest and trust in that. That comes to the practical application. Question 28. How does it profit us to know that God created and by his providence upholds all things? And the answer is in uh, three parts. Three parts to providence, three parts to how do we know? Or how does it profit us? We may, one, be patient. That is, good King James, long-suffering. 
in adversity. Be tolerant. David learned tolerance in allowing God to do what he needed to do. It's the ability to wake out, wait out the circumstance while you trust God that he knows what is best and he does what is good for he, we, his creation, but also especially for we, his children. So we're patient. Westminster Confession. In the fullness of his wisdom, righteousness, and grace, God often allows his own children to be tempted in various ways and for a time to pursue the corruption of their own hearts. God does this to chasten them for their previous sins and to reveal to them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness in their hearts so that they may be humbled in addition to various other just and holy results. Believers are thereby raised to a closer and more constant dependence on God for their support and also made more alert in detecting and resisting opportunities to sin. See, he allows it, he chastens us. Or he reveals the depths of our heart. Man, I never thought I could think that. Yes, you can. You just never thought it before. It's in there. And it has to be dealt with. Humbling us, but also raising us to a closer dependence upon God for everything. One of the worst things about a Christian is think, well, I've arrived and I can do this on my own. And then God is going to send you an adversity that says, you can't do anything unless I'm the one who helps you. That's humbling, especially for we Americans with a can-do spirit. Little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. All that we kind of admire in our culture. And God says, no, unless I'm at work, there's nothing that can happen or can do, you can do. Sometimes, I saw it on Facebook, we sometimes pray for God to uh, take away a situation where God has chosen to change us because of that situation. That is good wisdom. Sec third, secondly, that we may be thankful and in prosperity. If we're supposed to be patient in adversity, we're to be thankful in prosperity. Gratitude is a prime characteristic of what a Christian is to be. Not only rejoice in everything, but in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God for you. It doesn't say for everything give thanks because there are things that are evil that happen. You can't thank him. But in everything, you can give thanks to him. You can give thanks for the meal that you have. Even if it's the worst looking meal, I mean, even if the only thing you had in your cupboard, cupboard was onions and liver and you had to cook that. Now, some people like that. That's not hard to give thanks. Some of us would go, Thank you, Lord, for the provision you've given to us and help me not to taste it. <laughs> but you can be thankful for anything that comes along because you know it comes out of God's almighty, compassionate, good hand. Uh, as one person I've uh, known said, if God never gave us another ounce of good, we would be rich by what we already have. And we should be thanking him for what we have received. 
if nothing good ever happened to you the rest of your life, you still can be thankful for what God has given you and that you are still his. Or Tim Keller says, if Jesus didn't complain when he received a life infinitely worse than what he deserved, how can I complain while I experience a life infinitely better than I deserve? I mean, that's the idea. Thirdly, uh, that we may have uh, that what is future, uh, that in what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from him. That is, we can absolutely trust him. Our life, security in life, does not depend upon our pocketbook, our work, our friends, or anything else. It depends absolutely upon God. Uh, and since even evil is underneath his control, and so you have the Romans, 20, Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The reason for all this, that since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so move nor be moved. You are absolutely secure where you are. It may not feel that way. It may not seem that way to you. But because you are in his hands, you are absolutely secure where you are. Does that mean you necessarily stay there? No. Because God has something he wants to do in and through you, probably more than you could ask or think or imagine. And therefore, you're always at work to see what he's doing to bring you along. But where you are at this moment, you are absolutely secure. So the Psalm, Psalm 62, one I love to use it at funeral services. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before God. God is a refuge for us. Or the illustration of the cross. Jesus could face the, the cross because he knew the outcome. At least three times he's told his disciples, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. He will be put on trial. He will be beaten. He will go to the cross, but on the third day he will rise from the dead. He knew exactly the end result, and therefore he knew he was in his Father's hands. And no matter what happened, no how painful it might be, he knew that God was good and God was at work. So the summary of, of this all is this. Providence is God's protection of his creation continuing through concurrence with his creation toward the government of all his creation to his appointed end. Therefore, we can be patient, thankful, trusting, and resting in his goodness. Now, I can say this. You can learn it. The big part is can you live it? Say, that's what's going to happen in the next moment. In the next look that somebody gives you or doesn't look at you or whatever happens this afternoon or further down the road, do you trust that God is in work to preserve you by concurrence for the government toward the end for which he has created you, the church, and all things? That's a question you have to settle. I can't settle it for you.
Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We have tread on some very wonderful, marvelous, and yet difficult ground. And yet, by your Holy Spirit, you are able to help us not only understand and comprehend, but internalize it. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that that's what you would do with everyone who's here. If there's somebody here who does not know you and has been living on fate and chance and, and some higher power, that you would use this time to awaken them and quicken them to the need they have of Christ to all of us, that you would so work in our lives that when everything that happens in the world, in the news, in our lives, we would look and see what it is in your providence and in your care. For we set ourselves into your compassionate, strong, ever-present hand. That there's no better place for us to be. All in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said,